0: Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're working our way through the first letter, Paul's first letter to Timothy. But just as we did with elders, we are taking a bit of excursion. This is the scenic route, all right, through First Timothy, all right? He touches on two offices, elders and deacons. And just like we did with elders, uh, we looked at Acts chapter 20. We're going to take a look at Acts chapter 6 as we look at deacons further. So we're looking at Acts 6 this morning, and before we do so, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, you are kind and you are great. You have spoken. You have revealed your will, your mercy, your graciousness to us in your word. We pray that this morning we might see and know you to rejoice in you all the more. Help us, O Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 6. If you have ever taken something apart or if you have ever tried to construct something, put something together that had a lot of complex parts. I'm sure that you have gotten frustrated at times if you do something in the wrong order. Perhaps you have tried to create a meal or, 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 or make something with a complex recipe, recipe in the kitchen. And as you're putting the ingredients together, maybe you've done it many times, but you, you put something in at the wrong time, you don't do something at the right time. You failed to put an ingredient in when you you know you should have. You you know the effect that it can have on the whole dish as you do that. When I think of this, I I don't think of cooking because I have very little cooking skills, whatever amounts to putting whatever button on the microwave. That's almost the limit to my cooking ability. But uh, I think of the times where I have tried to put together IKEA furniture without looking at the directions. Have you ever done that? There's nothing nothing more sanctifying than those times right there. Nothing that will try men's souls than trying to put together IKEA furniture when you don't have the correct directions. It is trying to put together all of these pieces and, and you, you think you've got it. You, you know what a bookshelf, you know what the table or the desk is. You, you think you can do it on your own. You recognize all of the hardware, or at least most of the hardware. You start assembling it only to realize part way or a third or two thirds of the way in that the piece that you thought went one way goes a different way. And to set it right, you have to dismantle the entire thing before you can. Have you ever done something like this? It's wonderful, isn't it? So, so good. That 15 or 20 minute project turns into an All day affair of trying to not lose your patience, and it ends with a vow to never purchase anything from IKEA ever again until the next time you have to purchase something from IKEA and then you go that same way. Fortunately, assembling the pieces of a church isn't isn't as complex as that. We are given Paul in First Timothy gives us the the offices. There is the body of the church that that is receiving this letter and listening in. But the instructions are given to Timothy, who is acting as a pastor and elder of the church. And and there Paul describes in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, all of the, the qualifications for what an elder is to be. And we talked from Acts chapter 20. We saw a window into Paul's life as he displays what an elder is to do. And then we moved on to verses 8 to 13 a couple weeks ago, and we saw what deacons were called to be and the qualifications, the character qualifications that are listed there. But it remains to be asked and answered what do deacons do? What is a deacon's job? And in Acts 6, we are given this window into the construction of what deacons are to be. We are given a window into how deacons came to be in the church. And a church is simply made up of believers who have covenanted together for the faith of the gospel, over the faith of the gospel. They have covenanted together for the faith of the gospel to make Christ known, to disciple one another, and in doing so, they, they set apart certain individuals within the church to carry out certain functions. And we are set apart, as a church is a set apart, by the ordinances, by baptism. It marks the entrance into the church and the Lord's table, which marks that boundary line of the church. The church is made up of Christians. That is, those who have trusted in Christ... Those who have seen that God is good, that he is holy, that he is righteous in all that he is. And that he expects, he commands us to be holy as he is holy. Jesus tells us the standard, you must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And yet what we find is that none of us even approaches the level of righteousness that God demands. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God in His mercy does not leave us there. He in His compassion in His grace sends His Son into the world. And coming into the world, Christ lives, Christ dies for sinners like you and I. So that all who anchor themselves not on what we can do, not on what we what what we might do, but we anchor ourselves only and wholly on Christ and what he accomplished on the cross for us, that he paid for our sin there by following after him. That is what a Christian is. No more, no less. One who has and is clinging to to Christ for salvation, for, for a right standing before God. And Paul gives us these two offices in First Timothy and Acts 6. We want to look at the development, where deacons come from, what start, where, they, where they started, how they began to exist, and what purpose they serve. And that God's design in deacons and in elders is to serve the whole church. This is what I want us to, to think about this morning. We see this in 2 Corinthians 1.24. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. Paul describes his own ministry. When he is questioned by the, the church in Corinth, his, his, he writes to that church and he trying to explain to them some of the, his decision-making on behalf of the church. And he says, not that we, that's Paul and those with him, not that we lord it, that is their authority, we do not lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. That is to be the aim of those who serve in a church, whether pastors and elders or whether deacons. We serve for your joy. We work with you for your eternal happiness in God, to know him and to enjoy him forever. That, at the ground level, is what deacons and elders are to be at work in, are to be designed by God for. So how does this play itself out? We'll follow along as I read. Let's look at verse 1. We see Acts, if you are new to the Bible, Acts records the history of the church, the origin, the beginnings of Christianity. We read in Acts chapter 6, Now in those days, in this time, there is one church, only one church. It begins in Jerusalem, one local church. There is a, this is the only body of believers. Thousands of members we know by this point are here. Chapter 6, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, that is, the number of believers, the number of Christians was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution Then the twelve, that is the twelve apostles, acting as pastors, elders of this first church, then the twelve, they summoned the multitude of the disciples and they said, it is not desirable, it is not good, it is not right that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, Whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles. And when they, that's the apostles, had prayed over them, they laid hands on them. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. What we find here early on in the first few verses is that there is a threat to this thriving, fruitful church. The church there in Jerusalem is growing. The number of Christians is growing. It is the only church in the world at this point. It is the only place where Christians exist. And it is numbering into the thousands. And yet, despite the fact that growth is... that the church is growing, there are threats that begin to manifest themselves in these early days. We see that the first threat is to the the witness of the church. You see that in verse 1. When the number of the disciples is multiplying, there arises a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here's the issue: you have uh, widows, particularly those of the uh, Hellenists. They believe them to be vulnerable. I'm sorry, they believe them to be uh, neglected in this daily distribution. The church at this point is caring as churches are called to do, to care for those within the church, to financially, to help, to love, to provide for those in need. In the ancient world, widows were... It is hard to find a more difficult group of people in the ancient world that were more vulnerable than widows. By some estimates, one out of three women, some estimates measure up to 40% of women in the Roman Empire, were widows. Imagine that. One out of every three, four out of every ten widows in a body of people would be widows. Even if those numbers are cut in half, the existence of that amount of widows would overwhelm any community. Because in the ancient world, there was no welfare system and and women were expected to uh, be provided for by their family members, by their spouses. And when spouses ceased to exist, especially when the family was not taking care of the the mother, the one who had widowed, they were particularly poor, particularly vulnerable, particularly impoverished. And this is especially true in the Christian community. Because one of the things that begins to happen at this point is that as Christians begin to set themselves apart, their family members begin to distinguish them. That is, they begin to cut them off. If you're going to follow Christ, we will no longer support you. And so to handle the weight of all of these widows begins to fall on the church itself. This local church is now having to care and provide for all of these women. And so they begin to have this daily distribution. Daily distribution of food, of money to to these who were in need. This is a this is to be a mark of all of God's people. Christ tells us in John 13:35 that The distinguishing mark of a Christian is that we have love one to another. And in Galatians 6.10, we read, So then, as Paul writes, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially of the household of faith. And so up till now, the church has been marked by this generous love, this pouring out of itself for one another. We read about some of that in Acts chapter 2 earlier when Emerson read for us. We read in verses 4 and 45 of Acts chapter 2, all who believed were together. They had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Here within the body of Christ, anything that they had extra, they were selling off so that they could provide for one another. This is radical community. This is radical generosity This is love, costly love. We see again, two chapters later in Acts chapter 4, we read these words. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. That is, these people, though they had their own personal property, they had given their own personal property. They viewed it, rather, as As gifts of the Lord to be stewarded for the glory of God and for the good of his people. So they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Here's the church caring for one another. This isn't describing the end of private property. It's not describing a a Christianized version of communism. What you have is people willingly sacrificing what belongs to them for the good of those around them. It's not mandated. It's not forced. It's that we as Christians are called to leverage what God has given us for the sake of others. For the sake of his name. And you notice how in Acts chapter 4, these two things are, are partnered next to each other. You've got the apostles who with their words and their works, they're testifying of God. But that's it's sandwiched between this, this account of how God's people are showing generosity to one another. That the way God's people love one another, support one another, all of that, it, it adorns the gospel richly far too often we neglect this truth. We view selfishly that what we have is ours and unwilling to share it with others. So when we read about the issue that there is this material need in verse one, that widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, we can't merely see it as some, as a social problem. This is an issue that strikes at the very heart of Christ's call upon Christians to provide and to care for one another. It strikes at the very heart of what we preach and what we proclaim. It is a threat to the witness of the church. If the church ceases to care for those in its its own body, well, it will cease to have the power that it proclaims to, to declare. Not only is it th- there is a threat to the witness of the church, there is a threat to the unity of the church. We're told in verse 1 about these two groups, a complaint arises against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. That is, there are these two groups of people within the church. Now the church at this time is all Jewish people. They're all Jewish Christians. The gospel had yet to travel outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel. But what we have here, these two groups, the the first group, Hebrew Jews. That is, Jews that had been raised within Palestine, raised within Israel. They spoke Hebrew, they were culturally Jewish, culturally uh, Palestinian. They lived and adopted that culture. They read their Bible in Hebrew, they were culturally and linguistically distinct. And they were very proud of who they were and where they lived. And then you had Hellenists. That is, these were Jews who lived outside of, the, uh, of Israel. They had to one degree or another adopted the Greek culture as their own. Many of them spoke Greek. Many of them did not speak Aramaic, the language of Palestine at this time. They may have had inklings, they may have been able to read parts of scripture in it, but their primary Bible would have been the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And you can imagine two different peoples bound together in one church. And so you have these these Greek-speaking Jews, these Hellenists, who are often in Israel, they were looked down upon as being almost second class. They are, they are wondering, they are beginning to feel as if they have been shunted to the side. Their widows are being treated less well than the Hebrews. And, and Luke, as he's recording this, he doesn't tell us whether this complaint is accurate or justified or not. He doesn't even bother. The issue isn't whether it is true. The issue is that it exists. And the church is beginning to be torn apart along these same lines that the world is divided on. And if the church splits, the witness to Christ is undermined. The the central message of the gospel is that though sin separates us from God, by Christ we have peace with God. Well, how can we claim a gospel of peace if we are at war and at odds with one another? Do you see that? How does it showcase the glory and the goodness and the power of the gospel if the only people we are willing to associate with are the ones who act and think just like us? If the only ones who we are willing to worship with are the people who are of the same political persuasion of us? of the people who have the same kind of culture of us the people who have the same translation of the bible as we do if we justify dividing ourselves along the same lines that exist in the world then we show that the gospel is not a very powerful gospel the gospel of peace is not very powerful at all here's a threat to the unity of the church and finally there is a threat to the health of the church Verse 2 and 3, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. All right, so the problem, the complaint comes to the apostles, all right? And before we get to their response, I want you to just imagine you're at that meeting with the twelve apostles. Imagine you're there and you're trying to figure out what should we do? What should be our response? You can almost imagine what some of the responses might be. Perhaps a couple of the twelve, maybe James and John nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Maybe they say, you know what guys, don't worry about it. You guys keep doing what you're doing. We're going to handle it all. We'll take it on. We'll oversee the entire daily distribution ourselves. You can imagine maybe someone else wiser is like, no, that's way too much for you to bear. It's impossible for you to do it yourself. Perhaps someone more reasonable like Matthew. You know, he's, he was the tax collector. He was used to handling everything. Maybe he suggests a schedule. He says maybe, maybe six of us, maybe six of us do the first and third week of the month and the other six handle the second and fourth week of the month. Then may be some discussion over that and... One of them says, which week is the month, is it? And they start, I can't remember. And they they put that aside. Maybe they all stew for a while before Peter puffs up his chest and tries to do it himself. Until James, the half brother of Jesus, reminds everyone ultimately what is at stake the health of the church. And so they, they propose this solution. They write, they they, they tell the church in verse 3, Therefore, brothers, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. If the apostles, acting as the first church's elders, if they take on this responsibility themselves... They not only rob the people of God from serving one another in ways that God calls them to, they rob God's people of the very source of their spiritual health and vitality. They say, look, our primary job as, as leaders is to give ourselves to God's people, to serve them through prayer, through discipleship. If the apostles and the elders, if they, if elders and pastors of a church, if they if they busy themselves handling all the physical needs of the church, do you know what that means for the church? It means that that those things do not get handled. They do not get cared for. When will they have time to disciple others in the word of God? When will they have time to give themselves to prayer and to study of God's word? When will they have time to visit the sick? When will they have time to feed their own souls, much less feed the souls of others? When will they have time to care for the spiritual needs of the church, to pray with those who are in the hospital, to sit by the bedside of those who are grieving, to counsel that young man or that young couple, to sit with someone and remind them that God is good, even when life seems unfair? When will they have time to sit with someone over a cup of coffee to show hospitality? How can elders and pastors be expected to shepherd the people of God well if they are caring for all of the physical needs of the church? 20 years ago, long before I became a pastor while I was still in college, never forget... Um, meeting Saturday afternoon uh, with a handful of people and uh, one of the individuals meeting that afternoon was a a pastor. There were a number of pastors there. This pastor was a pastor of a church about our size. And he came and he showed me his hands. He's like, when was the last time you've seen a pastor with hands like this? His hands looked like they had, had black paint sprayed all over it. I was like, well, I don't remember the last time I've seen pastor's hands. I don't know the last time I've seen somebody's hands looking like that. I was like, what, what were you busy doing? He's like, well, this whole week, I was resurfacing my parking, the parking lot of our church. I was handling that. I took care of that. I was able to do it. Not many pastors are willing to do that kind of work. I was like, it's true. So I asked, I was like, well, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And his words to me were, I'm not sure, I'll figure that out tonight. It was right then and there I I understood something. You can't do everything. Something has to be given up. And the primary concern of of the apostles here, the primary concern of the church has to be the spiritual vitality and health of the church, which is why they argue in verse 4 that we will give ourselves continually to this work. And so what do they do, these, these elders, these apostles? They, they perform life-saving leadership. Verse 2, they call for a members' meeting. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples, the full number, that's that word. The full number. That is, they gather all the members of the church. And we know that it's the, the, those who are a part of the church because the chapter before describes in the early part of the chapter that they're, they're meeting in this one central location in Jerusalem. And yet there, though they are gathering there, there is a group of people that is kind of gathering with them, but they're unwilling, Luke writes, they're unwilling to join them. And the word there to join pictures a a kind of gluing together, a binding together. They gather all of these members together and they present this solution. In verse 2, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you. And here, They recognize the authority of the church. Seek out, pick out, choose out from among you seven men. Brothers and sisters, think about this. Here we have the twelve apostles. There is no one at this time nor since who has their level of authority. This is Peter. This is James. This is John. These men saw Christ transfigured. They walked with him for years, listened to his teaching, gaining understanding through his wisdom. And yet these men don't simply tell the church, this is what's going to happen. What do they do? They recognize that the church itself has authority. You, seek out, choose out, pick out from among you seven men whom we may appoint. They do not choose the deacons themselves, nor do they even draw lots for them. They call the church body to gather and to affirm these deacons first. And then when we see what these men do, these are life-saving deacons, and they're described in verses 3 to 7. These We see their character summarized up. uh, Seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That is, they are to be marked out by particular godliness. These are to be men who are aiming at following Christ, pursuing Christ in their lives, full of the Spirit that is walking with Him. More than that, they are to be men of wisdom, marked out by their ability to put into practice Christian truth, to be able to navigate difficult situations, and they are to be known for these things. They are to be men of good reputation. That is, they are to have a reputation within the church family for these things. Why is that last point important? Because these men are going to be, above all, they're going to be handling, going to be handling money. More than that, they're going to be walking into situations in which there is going to be tension. You've got the Hellenists complaining against the Hebrews. The Hebrews upset with the Hellenists. Deacons act as, as one writer has put, they act as shock absorbers between the conflict. They act to save and to serve the unity of the church. And they are, as they walk into these situations, they're going to need to know what to say. And they need to have the trust of the church that these men, these individuals, are serving us. And we can trust them with what we are giving to them to do. So rather than raising the temperature when they walk into a room, these are the kinds of people that lower it. These are the kinds of people that bring light rather than heat to a situation. That is their character. And then we see in verses 5 to 6 that these men are confirmed. And the same pleased the whole multitude, the whole church body. And they choose, and we read those seven individuals, beginning with Stephen. And I want you to notice that all of those names may not be totally obvious to us, but all of these names are Greek names. And we can't be totally sure, but it does seem apparent that the church, knowing the issue, chooses individuals that would be particularly trustworthy especially for that group that was feeling slighted. Here they are acting for the unity of the church far from creating a a power struggle within the church it becomes clear that the church is aimed at the unity of the church and do you you see the result here in verse 7? Then the word of God spread. That is the gospel of God spreads and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. What do deacons do? They serve the church, the needs of the body. Yes. And in so doing, deacons display the love of Christ Christ. Deacons serve the unity of the church, and in so doing, they help churches visibly display the gospel of Christ in their unity, one with another. More than this, deacons serve the health of the church by freeing up pastors and elders to care for the spiritual needs of the body, to lead the church well. Ultimately, deacons serve the advance of the gospel And the work of discipleship in the church. Deacons serve the glory of Christ. They serve the health of the church. They serve the joy of God's people. That is their aim. That is their aim. Brothers and sisters, we need godly, wise, trustworthy deacons for us to be and to do what God calls us to do. For those of you who serve as deacons, this is what God calls you to. To serve in this way, to love in this way, to act in this way. Faithful, fruitful service to to Christ. This church needs you. It needs you. And if you fail to live as God calls you to live, if you fail to serve in the way God calls you to serve, brothers and sisters in Christ, the whole church will suffer. The work of Christ will suffer. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what we are all to aim at. Here, the the apostles are calling for individuals who are full of the Holy Spirit, marked out by godliness, marked out by wisdom, and who are known for this. But this is to be the goal of every faithful believer that we are pursuing hard after Jesus. And that we become increasingly godly in our lives, the way we relate to those around us, the way we live out our lives and the decisions that we make regarding our jobs and what we do and how we do it and what we, how we live at home. It is to to mark us out that we are to be individuals who serve the glory of God. Who serve at his pleasure. And to gain wisdom to that end. That we may honor him in the situations that he calls us. So many churches, countless churches have been destroyed because of their deacons. But so many churches have been built up as this church was because of their deacons. If the deacons don't step off, if the church does not create them here, the gospel does not go on with nearly as much power and verve and vitality as it does. And the entire trajectory, the entire tenor of the book of Acts changes. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us pursue God in this. We may be men and women, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, which only the Lord can give. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we need you, how we need your grace. We are not what we ought to be. We are not what we want to be. Father, I pray that you will teach us to rest assured in what we are in Christ, to remember with joy that when we are with you in eternity, that we will be glorified. Now, Father, till then, I pray that you will work in us, that we may pursue hard after the things of Jesus. And so with our lips and our lives, that we may serve you, that we may serve those around us, that your name may be magnified and your people may be built up. Oh, God, be pleased to do this in us and through us and in spite of us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.